right. Um, there's not a lot of material on the handout, but there is a handout uh, if you'd like to, uh, to grab one. Um, it'll just help a little bit. Um, we're back on the table by the coffee. So we are, uh, we are into the, what's called the second article of the Creed. And um, if you look at your handout at the very top, uh, we're going to start at the beginning and we're going to go through to the phrase that we'll be addressing this morning. Okay? So we can say together... We believe in one God, the Father of the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to be addressing that phrase, one Lord Jesus Christ. And each one of those phrases is just so rich and important. Books have been written about each one of those things. So... Um, we're into some really wonderful material just with that phrase, One Lord, Jesus Christ. Those are all um, really important uh, ways of describing uh, the confession of our faith. And in order to get at these words, we're going to break these down into three words or phrases. So we're going to keep One Lord together as one phrase, focusing on Lord. And then the word Jesus... And then the word Christ, because each one of those expressions uh, is telling us something really important. I happened to be listening to a, uh, a lecture by a really famous uh, New Testament scholar, and he said something I really, really uh, liked. And I put it down on your piece of paper, because it's a good quote. He says that the creed affirms that Jesus died and rose again in accordance with the scriptures. Okay, we all get that. He says... The gospel, which is kind of his way of describing the story part of it, the gospel invites us to the table with the Emmaus disciples. Do you remember that story of the Emmaus disciples where they're on the road and Jesus kind of, you know, after the resurrection is walking beside them all of a sudden and they can't, uh, they don't recognize him. Do you remember the story? And then uh, he shares with them from the scriptures all things concerning himself. I mean, would you not like, have liked to be on that, that walk with him? Then uh, he serves them a meal and their eyes are open. It's like the word in the table. And, he's, and, then, and then they say, um, did not our hearts burn within us while he was opening the scriptures to us? So Richard Hayes, he says this, and I love this statement. He said, the creed guides our imagination. It guides our imagination. The gospel feeds it. I really like the way he said that because what he's saying here is that the creed and the scriptures are both vital for the understanding of our faith, but they're very different. The creed guides our imagination. It helps us to know how to stay on the path. But the scripture, the gospel stories, especially what uh, the, uh, uh, Richard Hayes is talking about, that feeds our imagination. So if we're not familiar with the story, we're depriving our imagination of the very thing that feeds it. And all we have left is kind of a dogma, but not a feeding. Okay? That's, that's what I want to emphasize today, because when we dig into the terms, one Lord, Jesus, Christ, all of those expressions are impossible to understand unless you are feeding on the gospel story. 
if you don't know the story, you cannot possibly understand what Lord means, what who Jesus is, or what Christ means. Okay, so uh, that's very exciting to me uh, because I love stories, and the Bible is one big story essentially. Okay, so this is very true of our selection today, and we're going to ask ourselves what do these words mean. So this morning, I want to do a little storytelling. And I don't know if you have brought your Bibles, but we're going to be really into our Bibles this morning. So if you can get out and open up your application. Please open up your app. Turn in your Bibles. When I was uh, growing up in church, they used to say, turn over in your hymnal to page 335. And how do you turn over in your hymnal? Okay, if you don't have your Bible, that's okay. Follow along with somebody who does. We're going to start out this morning, uh, we're going to start out with the phrase, one Lord. Now, we've already talked a little bit in previous Sunday School classes about one, the oneness of God. Paul's addressed that. But what we're going to be focusing on today is one Lord, the word Lord. What does it mean that there's one Lord? We're not talking here about his essence, his oneness. We're talking about his... Uh, uniqueness. There are no other lords. There is only one Lord. And we're going to start out with one of the most important verses in the Old Testament. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. This is a very important verse for Jewish people. It's the most important verse for Jewish people. It was one of the most important verses for Jesus. And it's often called uh, by the first word of this text, which in English is hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And in Hebrew, it's Shema. So oftentimes you'll hear Jewish people, they talk about praying the Shema. All right? Um, you'll hear that if you watch World War II movies about the Holocaust. You'll often hear this word Shema because that was an important part of the Jewish community kind of holding itself together under persecution. In fact, I'll show you just a little interesting tip that I can pass this around. In the Hebrew Bible, um, the uh, Shema is actually always at the top of the page in the Hebrew Scripture. I'll pass this around. And if you have really sharp eyes, even though you don't know Hebrew, you'll notice that the first word of that, uh, it, there's a bold letter. And on the last word of the verse, there's a bold letter. Now, that wasn't always written that way. But in tradition, those two bold letters that bookend this text... Uh, the, uh, the Hebrew there is aid or witness. So when you say the Shema, you bear witness to the oneness of the Lord. That's uh, how important it is. Kind of, if you've never seen a Hebrew Bible before, it's right on, it's on the left page in the upper right-hand corner, that first phrase. And we're going to read it together, actually. Okay, so if you have your papers, we're going to read this together. In English, it's, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So let's say it together there. You can see right under the quote in that first italicized uh, section. It starts out Shema. It sounds like this. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Adonai means the Lord. So let's say it together. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Jesus would have prayed that probably twice a day, uh, as the Jewish community were already doing at that time. This is a really important verse, as I've tried to emphasize. So Yahweh, it's... The, the word for God's name is so sacred in the Jewish community that you don't pronounce it. 
So there's been a, in, in the old days, uh, they used to pronounce it Jehovah, if you've ever heard that way of pronouncing it. Scholars today uh, are pretty agreed that it's called, you would, you would pronounce it Yahweh. So in Christian communities, when we're doing Old Testament studies, we'll talk about Yahweh. But if you were a Jewish person, you wouldn't say that. You would say Hashem, which means the name, or you would say Adonai, um, or some other, what they call a circumlocution. You ever heard that word, circumlocution? It means using one word in place of another. So here's the point. You don't, Lord is how we often translate the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's not really a translation. It's a circumlocution. We, there is no translation of the word Yahweh that's common. So oftentimes in your Old Testament, when you're reading the Bible and you see the word Lord, it's this, uh, it's this special name that, that people don't pronounce if they're Jewish. Okay? So we're saying that the Lord here, this is an interesting translation. So the phrase that's important for us this morning with respect to one Lord is this phrase, Adonai Echad. It literally means Lord One. Or Lord Alone. So English translations of this verse will go something like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or it will be the Lord our God is Lord Alone. Okay, do you hear the difference between those two uh, options? One is focusing on the essence of God. The Lord is one. The other alternative is the Lord alone, which describes his supremacy. That the Lord is Lord alone. Now this text was given to Moses. All right? Remember Moses is the guy that, that leads the Israelites out of bondage in, uh, from Egypt. So this is more than 3,000 years ago. All right? And at that time, the Jewish community was still very unformed in its knowledge of God. It just didn't know God well. And that's why Moses is known as the great teacher, because after they're out of Egypt, they go into the desert and they're given the Torah, the instruction, the guidance, the wisdom of God, because they just didn't know him very well. And that's why this creed is so important, because at that time especially, and it's no less today, the temptation of paganism was to, to believe in other gods. And so Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, was Israel's confession to hold them accountable that there are no other gods. There are no other gods. There is only one God. God alone is God. Okay? So this is one of the first most important moments in the history of God's people where we start this confession. This confession of God is God alone. Everybody believed in gods. Everybody believed that there were gods. And there were gods for all kinds of things. And they had just come from Egypt where there are all kinds of gods. They have a, Egypt had a very rich and sophisticated religious tradition. So Israel had to be trained by this confession to say that actually God is God alone. Very, very important in Israel's history and in ours because that's the first building block of what is becoming our confession to this day. So that's the first key text. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the Shema. Very, very important text to, 
to have in your heart and in your mind. God is God alone. He's the Lord alone. So that begins Israel's cultivation in this idea that there, there actually are no other gods. There are no other names with authority and power. And that's what begins now in the history of Israel as God discloses his uniqueness, his supremacy to Israel. Now the question becomes, what kind of God is this that's God alone? What kind of God is this that we're confessing as God alone? Who is this God? And again, I want to refer you back to this quote from Hayes. The creed guides our imagination. The gospel feeds it. This is the key point. It's the story that's telling us what kind of God is it that we're worshiping. Well, um, to stay in this time frame of Moses, well, one of the most significant uh, things that happened to, to Israel to tell them what kind of God it is that they worship was the exodus from, from slavery, redemption. That story of redemption from slavery, that is the gospel story. And God has been doing this all the way along, rescuing us from our bondage, rescuing us from our slavery, from, from our sin, from oppression, from death, from all kinds of stuff. God is the redeemer, and he wanted to be known that way. So he does this thing in Israel's history. So another text I want us to go to that's going to start to raise themes that appear in our creed, one Lord Jesus Christ, there's a really important text. The next one I want to draw your attention to is Exodus chapter 15. This is also a very important text to become familiar with when you're thinking about what kind of God we worship. And again, this is all related to our phrase this morning, one Lord Jesus Christ. So what I'm doing right now is I'm kind of constructing a symphony, okay? Right now we're just kind of plucking the notes. You may not hear the whole melody yet, but what's really important for us is to have the notes starting to sound and become familiar, okay? So now you're going to hear a few more notes. We've heard the notes of the Lord alone. Now listen to what Moses, this is the song of Moses. This is a very old text, really old and, and this song is what Moses and then later on his sister Miriam will sing after the triumph over, um, over Pharaoh's armies. Okay, and we're not going to read the whole song, um, but I want to just point out a couple of verses. First of all, the opening is very famous. Chapter 15 of Exodus, verse 1. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed Gloriously, The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And, and then if we move on, I want to sound a couple other notes I'll refer to in verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? All right, now, does that sound familiar from our previous discussion here? This is the uniqueness of the Lord. There's no other gods like him. Who among the gods is like you? It's not quite the same thing as saying there are no other gods. At this point, what's happening is that what Moses is emphasizing is that among the gods, 
among the principalities and powers and authorities, there's no one like this God. So if you match verse 1 and the word triumph with verse 11, where there's no other gods like you, you hear those two notes sounding. God, there's nobody else like you. Why? Because you triumph over them. So make this connection between one Lord and triumph. Why are there no other gods? Because God alone has triumphed. Do you hear those two notes sounding? Okay, let's move to verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. The people whom you have redeemed. Another very significant note. So let me just keep reviewing. We have the uniqueness of God that's established in the triumph over his enemies for the sake of redeeming his people. Aloneness, uniqueness, triumph, redemption. Okay, now you can start to hear a little bit of a melody emerging out of these notes, right? Okay, verses 17 through, uh, 17 through 18. You will bring these people in and you will plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. I mean, really, this song is pretty much the theology of Scripture from start to finish. So, so I can't commend it more highly for your devotional reading. Be very familiar with this. But you see that now there's another dimension added to this, which is the future reign of this Lord. All right? So here's, here's the, uh, the, the melody forming again. One Lord who triumphs over his enemies for the redemption of his people and the establishment of his reign. It starts to sound pretty familiar, doesn't it? I, I have heard that story before. <laughs> yeah. We believe in one Lord. What kind of Lord? This Lord who triumphs over his enemies and redeems his people and promises a future reign. That Lord. Okay. So that sets the tone for Israel's history as she learns who God is and who they are in relation to him. And that's an important part. So now, Moses, leading the people, are responding to this Lord. This is a response. It's a song. As we're learning, uh, and you'll hear Father Eric preach this quite a lot, singing is the best way to do theology. And Moses sings his theology as a response. And these notes and this melody is now going to sound throughout Israel's history. And the reason why Israel's history is both beautiful and difficult is because that melody gets very confused and oftentimes rejected or transformed through Israel's brokenness. And of course, we all know that we do the same thing in our own lives, so that's just not to pick on one group of people. But you can see that, that now this melody that Moses is singing about sounds itself and most powerfully through the poets and the prophets of Israel. 
And there are many, many, many texts that we could sample here that, that demonstrate features of this tone. But for sake of time, I'll just raise just a couple, okay? Along the idea of the lordship of God, Adonai Echad, one lord, there are many psalms uh, that depict dynamics of this, and they're known as royal psalms, and there's a lot of references here, but I'll just pick out two that I like. One is Psalm 72, 18. Psalm 72, verse 18. Blessed be the Lord, Adonai, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. So here's just a a kind of a a variation on the theme. I keep with this music metaphor, which is developing here. It's going to get away away from me before long. But um, (laughs) this variation is talking about the God of Israel who does wondrous things and whose, whose glory will fill the whole earth. That's an aspect of God's uniqueness. He alone is God, and his glory alone will fill the whole earth. The prophet Isaiah just has many, many wonderful uh, poems about uh, God's glory in in various dimensions. Here's one from chapter 45, verse 5. Here's the Lord speaking directly through the prophet Isaiah. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. Now, I find that really a great statement because, remember, this is even more emphatic. God is not only God among other gods. He's not only the highest God among all gods. In fact, there are no other gods in contrast to this God. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. That's very emphatic and very powerful. Uh, particularly among people who get uh, nervous or afraid or confused by the existence of other powers. And God says, no, there are no other powers. There are no competitors. And that's actually quite interesting uh, and, and very important, particularly for, uh, for those of us who have grown up with movies like Star Wars and these things, where we start to think that the battle between good and evil is equally matched. And I want to just say really clearly, that is not scriptural. God has no competitors. God is not competing with anyone. Satan is only his servant. Satan can only do anything to the extent that God lets him. God is not fighting Satan or competing with him on any level. And Isaiah helps make that very clear. There are no other gods. Yes? Isn't there one more thing that's being said that it was common for folks to incorporate the new gods they came to? So he's making a very subtle but clear point that this is not like the chief of gods. You know, right. Like, you know, these other gods are like just under him, and you should pay attention to those as well. It's very clear that this mm-hmm. is a completely new direction. Yes. Yep. Um, here, here's another theme that's really important that comes up again also in when we get to um, further in, in our creedal statement, and that is that his reign. Remember this: Moses had talked about the reign of God. That's going to be really important as we get into the ministry of Jesus. Uh, this one God reigns in justice. Justice is a key theme in the Psalms and the Prophets. I'll just, just a couple for taste. Psalm 9, verses 7 and 8. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. 
He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. So this one Lord who is establishing his reign reigns in justice. Um, just for sake of time, I'll move on uh, to another passage that, that, that uh, develops this theme of the future. This future place where God's reign will be established. And again, Isaiah has some of the most exquisite descriptions of what that reign will be like. Um, here I'll draw from chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, remember Moses talked about a mountain, mountain of the Lord. That's actually a, a great theme that goes back to Eden, and there's a lot of really interesting stuff with mountain. But on this mountain, now the mountain of Jerusalem where the temple is, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. He will swallow up death. He will wipe away tears from all faces. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So these are beautiful psalms. These mean a lot to me personally. It strengthens my faith to read and celebrate and sing and pray these things. This is the future vision for God's people. Okay. Now, what happens in Israel's poetry and prophecy is we start to hear a new note sounding. All right? We've established in our creed that God is one, but we're not in that part of the creed, the first article which talks about God the Father. We're talking about God the Son. It's God the Son who is one Lord. That's interesting. How do we make that leap why isn't that just terrible? I mean, didn't we just spend all this time saying there's no other gods and all that? Right? All of a sudden, there's a new note that starts to sound in Israel's prophecy all the way back to Moses, but through the prophets and the Psalms. And that's that we start to hear that a special person is going to appear. An emissary. Uh, uh, someone who comes from God with a mission. Moses was famous for saying this in uh, that there... Well, it's, it's actually uh, one of the prophets for David, but he alludes to Moses that there will be a prophet like Moses who will appear. That was way back in the time of David, King David, thousands of years ago. These notes, who is it? Who could that be? And, and these, the, you start to have pictures of all of a sudden somebody coming forth, a special person who's going to carry out God's mission in a special way. Now, here are a couple of key texts that you'll hear uh, in, in the ministry of Jesus. One of the most popular and famous ones is uh, Psalm 110, verse 1. It's a very mysterious verse, an enigmatic verse. It says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And you may have heard that in some of our gospel readings. Jesus refers to this verse. And this, is, this first verse is just really interesting. The Lord says to my Lord, now, King David, who wrote this, was likely referring to himself. But the language that follows is rather exalted for a normal person. 
The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your, enemy, my, your enemies your footstool. And then the, it goes on to talk about a mighty scepter and the ruling in the midst of the enemies and um, the shattering of the kings of the earth and the execution of judgment. So even if it was referring to David, it expands way past David. And that, that's what I mean about this new note sounding. What, who is this prophet like Moses? Who is this king like David who sits at God's right hand? Then, one that uh, if you've ever sung in choir, you will know this one really well, or if you've ever sat in Handel's Messiah. This is Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. I won't sing it, I will spare you, but it says, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called. Now, this is very interesting. Wonderful counselor. Now, get this next one. Mighty God. Now that word God there is not one of the other forms of the name of God that you would use generally. That's, that's the name that you don't utter. That's God's name. So when it says that a child will be born and his name will be called Mighty God, that's unnerving. It's, it's provocative. He will be called Everlasting Father. This child, that will be born. Prince of Peace. That's a marvelous text. Where is that again? That's Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Sorry, I got that wrong. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. There's a whole song there. I just read the first couple of verses there. Um, How does rabbinic Judaism handle that? Well, they, they... I don't think they handle it well, to be honest with you. Um, I've... Uh, and that sounds patronizing, but I've heard this debated among Jews and Messianic believers, and the Jewish people that, that have responded to this struggle with, with it a little bit, because you can't get around that name that's used. So they try to they try to make it as metaphorical as they possibly can in order not to be specific, but it's just there. <laughs> so it, it's an unusual verse, and even the Jewish community would recognize it as such. Isaiah 52, verse 13 this is well known among Christians because this, this is the suffering servant. And in our, our Holy Week services, we'll talk about that. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He opened not his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. So that's that whole passage where he takes on himself the iniquity or the sinfulness of us all. That's the servant. So the question is, who is that servant? So again, these are notes that are sounding in Scripture of someone coming who is going to be more than, a, more than an ordinary person. Words fail, words defy, but he's going to be like Moses. He's going to be like David, but he's going to be more than Moses, and he's going to be more than David, and he's going to take on the mission of Israel. He's going to suffer on behalf of other people. Daniel will go on to say he's like a son of man um, coming down. And, and uh, we can go on and on. These are, these are notes that are sounding. So that when we're moving from our confession, we're saying, Jesus, in the second article here, he is one Lord. Now, we haven't gotten that far yet, but what we have established is that the importance of there being one Lord has been established in the Old Testament. And that one Lord has attributes he is triumphant. He redeems his people. 
He judges justly. He he addresses their sin. He casts a vision for a future reign. And now what we're hearing in the Old Testament are these new notes sounding that somebody's coming like Moses and like David, but even more. All right. Now we get into the New Testament and we start to realize the next part of our article is we have one Lord. Who is that one Lord? Jesus. Now, that's a really interesting term, and I want us to absolutely fall in love with the name of Jesus. Jesus isn't a metaphor. He's not a symbol. He's not, uh, he's not a ghost or something. I mean, it, it doesn't say one Lord. Well, for example, let me give you an example of what I'm trying to convey. You're familiar with the term logos. Love the word logos. The word, right? What if the creed had said, one Lord, logos, Christ? It would feel different. It, it wouldn't feel like what they were trying to say. One Lord, Logos, Christ. Okay, I got a bunch of titles. I got a, a bunch of titles of, of somebody that I can't see. This is a really interesting contribution into the creed. We don't say one Lord, Logos, Christ. We say one Lord, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus born of Mary. Jesus who walked around among us. Jesus who was flesh and blood. Jesus who had breakfast. That Jesus. Jesus who smiled. Jesus who rebuked. Jesus who laughed. I love that myself. And I put on your paper, um, the way it sounds in Hebrew is Yeshua. It would have sounded a little bit different to somebody who speaks it fluently. Because that... That last A there is something that's hard for Americans. It's like, it's a, it's a, you have to be Arab or Jewish to say it well, but it's Yeshua. Yeshua ha-Mashiach. Ha means the, and Mashiach is Messiah. And the reason I'm putting it there is because Messiah is the word translated Christ. So I'll get there in a second. Um, so Yeshua, Jesus, ha-the, Messiah, Mashiach. Yeshua ha-Mashiach. Um, Maybe you'll hear my friend Ofer, who's going to be speaking at Oasis tonight. From, he's my best friend from Israel. Ofer will be here, and, and I love Ofer. This is one of the reasons I went to Israel to begin with. And, and uh, uh, Ofer is able to join us tonight, and, and you can ask him to say Yeshua. Um, um, so, just to insert, what you're trying to say is think about Jesus as a common name, like yeah. Frank or Oswald. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! <laughs> well, I hate to say it, but as, as uh, uh, Robin Williams says, it, you know, what if it had been Jim Bob? You know, <laughs> Jim Bob, the son of God. You know, he didn't think that would go over very well. But yes, it makes it very present, doesn't yeah. it, Jesus? Doesn't Jesus feel different? Doesn't it feel like somebody you want to know? I do. One Lord. One Lord. Who, who is that one Lord that we've heard some? Jesus. That was spectacular. I mean, and he didn't just come out of heaven with a big sign on him. I'm the Messiah. I mean, he had to do for the Jewish community what God the Father did for the Jewish community. He had to disclose his nature over time through teaching and through getting involved in people's lives. 
Jesus is doing the same thing. He has to uh, disclose his identity and his character through his teaching and his ministry and by getting involved in people's lives and doing things. Okay, so Jesus is going to be doing the same thing. And the New Testament is the witness of those first disciples to what they saw and heard and felt. And, and so you start to hear the same notes beginning to sound in the gospel stories. For example, this Jesus is that emissary which is ident- we identify as Christ. One Lord, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the one sent. What Messiah means, it comes from a, a Hebrew word to anoint. So oftentimes in, in, in the old days when, when uh, a king was selected or when somebody was spent on a special mission, they would be anointed with, with pure olive oil. It was a sign of, of conferring uh, or blessing God's unique mission for that person who was specially chosen. Olive oil was a sign of the richness. Um, in, in fact, if you remember from some of our passages from Isaiah, the rich wine and the oil and the... You know, that's a sign of richness and blessing. And the oil was a sign of that future reign when the goodness of the land would be available for all people. So that oil, just like for us today, is very significant uh, and very symbolic and very rich. And when you would anoint anoint somebody, they were um, messianic. They were anointed. That word took on a lot of then uh, special power that there would become not just a general you know, anointing, but there would be a Messiah who was this particular special person that would do something to deliver Israel. And at the time of Jesus, there were a lot of different views of what that Messiah would be like. He would be kind of a priest. He would be kind of a king. He would be kind of a military victor. And, and people were speculating about what kind of Messiah he would be. And so you start to see, even uh, when Matthew starts telling the story, uh, not that everybody would have known this at the time, but Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is that Messiah. And so if you look in the first chapter of Matthew, um, in all of your favorite parts, which is the genealogies, I know, um, uh, chapter 1, verse 17, here's what Matthew says. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, that's the exile, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, the Christ, 14 generations. So Matthew doesn't waste any time here. He wants you to know right in chapter 1 that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. And now that story from Matthew will unfold the different gospel writers will want to introduce that idea in different ways. So not everybody comes right out of the gate like, um, like, uh, like Matthew does with that announcement or like John does with different terminology. Um, but Luke certainly wants us to know that something special is happening. And I love this Luke chapter 1. This is where we have a glorious song of Mary. And this is important for this particular reason that I want to emphasize this morning. Here's the particular reason. Mary's song will connect the history of Israel with Jesus. Now, we heard a little bit of that in Matthew. Matthew, through his genealogy, is connecting a little bit of the, at least the, the ethnicity 
there. Mary is going to connect the story of Israel with Jesus. So remember when I asked, how do we get from God the Father, one Lord, to God the Son, one Lord? Well, that's what's beginning to happen here. And Mary, in her song called the Magnificat, is going to make that connection. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord, Adonai, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That's that quality of his lordship. And for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He's done these great things. His mercy is for those who fear him. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Have you heard these notes before? This triumphant God who's redeeming his people. We've heard that from Moses' song. Now we're hearing another song, Mary's song. And Mary is singing very much the same tune. Very much the same tune. He has filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel. Goes back to that language from Isaiah. In remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers. So in this beautiful song of Mary, she's doing much the same thing as Moses in singing forth this new work of the emergence of the Messiah. And uh, math, uh, Jesus will continue in this theme, and I'll just uh, I'll I'll conclude this particular section with this. Uh, Matthew 11, um, Jesus himself wants to reveal himself as Messiah in a particular way, and uh, and this is a hard time here because John the Baptist, who has been proclaiming the messianic nature of Jesus, gets thrown in jail. In fact, he's going to be beheaded. And when John is in jail, he's starting to have some doubts about Jesus. And so John's disciples come to Jesus and they say, look, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, uh, um, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He's saying, in a sense, he's saying, yes, I'm the Messiah in a particular way. Okay. So Jesus is revealed uh, through these notes that are sounding around him that he is, he is actually this messianic figure. And uh, just for sake of time, I'll, I'll draw kind of more quickly towards the conclusion Jesus is not only establishing himself as Messiah, because other people at the time would have been familiar with this concept of Messiah, but he's establishing himself now, to get back to the start, as Lord. And that is not necessarily something that would have been commonly understood. And I'll just breeze through some of these things, because you know the story of Jesus a little bit. He established himself as Lord through his teaching. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he says in in, uh, Luke chapter 11, verse 20, when you see the finger of God casting out the demons, you will know that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the point here is that Jesus now is using this language of reign or rule. Remember, we've heard that before, that this one Lord is the Lord who reigns. That's what Moses is saying. 
Jesus is saying the same thing. He's saying, watch what you see. What you're seeing is the reign of God being established through me. And so you'll see this in, in, uh, um, in his confrontation with Satan, in his exorcism of the demons, in his calming or control of nature, in his healing of diseases, in his overcoming death when he called Lazarus out of the grave. The way that he addresses Pontius Pilate, he said, you could do nothing without my authority. So all throughout the life of Jesus, he's establishing his lordship the same way that God the Father did, by triumphing over the enemies. Okay? Now, the kicker, he dies. Now that's a bad thing if you're a disciple because that of all the things Jesus does was not, there's no, there was no precedent for it. Nobody was expecting that. And so, um, and so Jesus dies. And that is where we draw from those passages from Isaiah about the suffering servant, but he does not stay dead. He rises again. And that's when, in the New Testament, you find the avalanche of lordship language applied to Jesus. It's post-resurrection. When Jesus raises from the dead, the disciples put it together with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Ah, this is the Lord. So I'll I'll close with some of these verses, but this uh, this is the last phrase on your sheet. Maranatha, Maranatha, rather. It's Aramaic. It's like Hebrew. It's probably what they were speaking at the time of Jesus. That's the last prayer of the Bible. It means, it means, Lord, come. Mar is the Aramaic word for Lord. So we've heard the Shema. We've heard Mashiach. And we've heard this Aramaic prayer, which we pray, Maranatha, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And you see now when we read the letters of Paul, especially, and those people who were writing after the resurrection um, to the churches, you find these amazing statements. And this is how we'll close out our time together. Here's, um, here's uh, um, the statement of Jesus' lordship. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you hear that association between lordship and resurrection there. How about Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, a very early hymn that Paul is quoting. Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Do you see how it's all coming together now? One Lord, Jesus, Messiah. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom all things exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. He must have been reading the Nicene Creed at that point. <laughs> through whom all things and through whom all things are made and through whom we all exist. 
or as it came to be known for the early martyrs of the church, not Caesar, but Jesus is Lord. So Jesus is now tying this to our new future, the triumph of Christ's reign forever in a new world, and that kingdom will have no end. Here's what it says in Revelations chapter 11, verse 15, my last verse. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord, God, and his Christ, Jesus the Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.